You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When Paul was writing to Timothy, giving him counsel about how to be a good pastor, uh, he told him that you need to be ready to prepare in season, out of season, to preach in season and out of season. And you probably realize that as a pastor, you probably like preaching. Otherwise, that wouldn't be your calling. But I think every pastor would admit there are certain Sundays, certain seasons in the Christian calendar that you especially like preaching on. Uh, And so, for example, Easter would be one. Uh, Think Christmas, Advent, Christmas Eve service. Those are all like exciting times uh, to preach above and beyond just the privilege of preaching all the time. But October is also one of my favorite months to preach in. And it's not just because there's a Pastor Appreciation Sunday wrapped up in that, but because it draws us back to a significant event, and that is the Protestant Reformation. In other words, what the month of October gives us the opportunity to do is to look back in order to move forward. In other words, to to go back in history and pick up on some things that the Reformers, the Protestant Reformation was saying, the church needs to restore these things. And to look at that and say, yes, that is vital not just over 500 years ago. It is vital today. And so what we're going to do for the month of October is look at some key teachings that, that sort of drove through the Protestant Reformation that tell us even today, we do need another reformation. Uh, So open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And in particular, in the first 10 verses, we're going to see two central doctrines of the Christian faith. And they are very different sounding, but both are central to what it means to be a Christian. And so we shouldn't take these for granted, even though as you hear them, you'll be like, well, of course, I know I've heard of those doctrines before. 
these were so important uh, that guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, were willing to risk everything to call the church back to restoring these the priority they should have. So in Ephesians chapter 2, look at me at verses 1 through 3. Let me read these opening verses here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So the first doctrine that Paul brings up here, and again, he's just pulling out of what God teaches in his word, is what we might call the doctrine or teaching of total depravity. In other words, what does it mean to say that everyone apart from Christ is, is totally sinful? Not, not that we have an inclination to sin, but our very nature dictates that we will sin, and we will do it freely and willingly, but we will sin. Well, step back for a moment and think about who this letter is going to. Because you think of the doctrine of sinfulness, total depravity, we might be thinking, well, of course, the person who doesn't know Christ, they need to hear that. And that is true. But remember, Paul's primary audience that he's addressing in Ephesians are believers. In, in a way, he wants to remind Christians, you must never lose sight of the doctrine of total depravity, of what you were before you came to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so you notice in verse 1, as well as in verse 3, uh, pronouns in verse 1, like you, your transgressions. Notice verse 3, all of us. In other words, there's no way for this letter to be read and heard without everyone realizing this is about you. This is about me. That there's no exceptions. And Paul closes that loophole when he says, all of us. This is how we were, B.C., before our conversion in Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important? Well, we're, we're often are quick to say, well, the gospel is good news. And it is. But, but think for a moment, what makes something good news? So if I were to ask you to make sure this week you look at the headlines, at the end of the week, I'm going to ask you, did you find any good news? You actually need bad news to be able to distinguish what is good news. And so if you look closely in verses 1 through 3, you have the bad news is laid out for us, specifically as almost a, a series of charges against us. Um, I don't know if Paul intentionally was mirroring this, but you often find the Old Testament where, where God will, will put his judgment in the form of a lawsuit oracle. Like in other words, where he presents to Israel, here are my charges against you. And then God also acts as the judge and also acts as the prosecuting attorney. 
Well, look at what Paul says here as terms of the charges against us. Verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, you don't need a theological degree to understand what dead means. No hope, without hope. Completely insensitive, non-responsive to the, the truth of the scriptures. That's how you and I were. But then notice he's very careful to distinguish here or drive home the intensity or depth of our sinfulness when he says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, both those words refer to offenses against God, but they each have a different emphasis to them. Transgressions is an intentionally stepping over a known boundary or line. So any of you who have raised children can probably think back to a time you were very clear and said to your son or daughter, do not do this. And they either looked at you and did exactly what you just said not to do, or very soon after they intentionally disobeyed. So the word transgression puts the responsibility not on lack of clarity and directions, but, but personal responsibility of, of rebelling, pushing back against God. The, the second term, sins, emphasizes guilt. And I think as I say that, we realize we live in a world that has increasingly not only accepted shame, but now promotes it. And you can profit off your shame, your embarrassment that you do. Well, notice the scriptures tell us there is a sense which we should be full of shame, guilt, when we realize the depth of our own sinfulness apart from Jesus Christ. I like how one theologian put it. He said, people feel guilty today, although they don't want to admit it or try to push it away. They feel guilty, and they should, because they are guilty. I mean, that's exactly what Paul's saying here on this doctrine of total depravity, total sinfulness. Notice in verse 2, he expands on that and says that, that we once followed, literally some translations, we walked the ways of this world, uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So it's not that we just occasionally push back against God or, or didn't do what his word said. We, we willingly live that way. Now, we could argue there's degrees in which maybe your sinfulness manifested itself before you became a Christian, but you were totally a sinful. All of us were totally sinful in our entire nature. And we want to clarify this because you may be thinking, and someone who maybe isn't familiar with the scriptures could say this to you, well, I know people who are really nice, and they're not Christians. You know, they'll go out of their way to help you. Paul's not negating that. That would be something we would attribute to common grace. Everyone is made in the image of God. And that image is indelibly stamped on us that, that we do see examples of it socially uh, by people who are not believers. And that just testifies to what it means to say we're made in the image of God. But that doesn't mean you're in a right relationship with God. 
And so as Paul talks about this, he again closes the door and says, this is how we all were. We, we lived and our priorities were, were just like the world's. And in fact, when he says we followed the ruler of the air, he, he's talking about we, we were influenced and followed really Satan. You know, I mean, there's only one of two paths. You're either obedient to God or you're obedient to Satan. He's saying that's, that's how we live. That, that was our mode of operation, how life was for us. But then notice verse 3. He has one more thing to add to this. Uh, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, and then adds, we were objects of God's wrath. So you may recall a few Sundays ago, we were talking in the adult class, um, and I share with you how one pastor summarized the gospel, and he summarized it by saying uh, that God is not mad at you, he's madly in love with you. And I think we can understand, well, yeah, God does love us, but the reality is he also is justly angry at sinners. We, we are the objects of his wrath because we're the opposite of his holy character. And yet he made us, he created us. Think of how upset you would be if something you made you brought to me, and I, I picked it up, I looked at it, and then I just smashed it. You'd probably be angry. And, and rightfully so. Why? Because you, you made that. And so we see Paul wrapping all this up to talk about the doctrine of total depravity. Now, as I'm saying all this, you might be thinking, well, I, I know that's true. And, and I know myself, and I, I know that's what I was like before I was a believer. But the reason I think it's important to look back to be able to move forward is increasingly fewer and fewer people believe in the doctrine of total depravity. And, and I'm going to support this with a couple of, of statistics I'll give you. So there's something called the state of theology. Uh, it's done every two years. It's kind of put together by a Lifeway research as well as Ligonier Ministries, two Christian ministries. And what they do is they do this extensive polling uh, and they give people statements. And what they're looking for is, can they see how generally evangelical Christians respond to this in comparison to people who are not Christians? Now, we would hope that there would be a big difference, that, that if you're claiming you're an evangelical Christian, which for that survey simply means you would say that Jesus dies for your sins. So it's a very broad label. But, but let me show you how this kind of raises some immediate problems with something as simple and as central as the doctrine of our complete sinfulness apart from Christ. So in that survey, here's a statement they gave to people. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? Well, 75% of people who are not Christians said they agree with that. I don't think that would surprise us, right? I mean, that we would expect people who aren't Christians to kind of think, you know, yeah, there's bad people, but 
but by and large, we're all kind of innocent. Uh, when we do something evil, then, then we become maybe evil, but basically we're innocent. Well, what's more disturbing is 65% of those who said they're evangelical Christians agree with that statement. Now, now just kind of think about that. 65% of those who say they're Christians agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Th think about this for a moment. What's the difference between saying this? Uh, we are sinners because we sin, or saying we sin because we are sinners. So just kind of think for a moment. What, what, what's it mean if you say we 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 are sinners because we sin? And I think that explains why you have a number of quote-unquote Christians. What they're kind of saying is they, they really think we are born innocent. You become a sinner when you actually sin. Now, that's something back in church history. There's a guy, Pelagius, who basically taught that, and, and he was declared a heretic. But what these statistics reveal is more and more now, that's becoming a dominant doctrine that many, quote-unquote, believers are saying, yeah, I think that is true. You know, that you're born innocent, and there are sinners, but you become a sinner when you sin. Now, think of the difference, because I think what Paul's saying here in Scripture teaches is we sin because we are sinners. Notice the difference? That's emphasizing we are born with a sinful nature. Now, it's probably good that Augie's out of the room right now because I have a comment about him. Uh, he's such a cute little guy, but he is a sinner. And he can only be saved by God's grace. He's not innocent because he hasn't done anything yet. He, he is a sinner. And, and notice that that's a very different thing to say we, are, we sin because we are sinners. We're, we're hardwired that way from the beginning of Adam and Eve's disobedience against God. Not that we become that way because of just poor choices we make along the way. And so Paul lays out what was evidently a very strong truth that the, the Protestant reformers were kind of bringing to the church in their day, saying, you've lost sight of this central teaching in God's word about the nature of sin. What does it mean to say that we are sinners? Because, in fact, think of, let's run with that. If 60, what did I say, 65% of evangelical Christians feel that everyone is born innocent, then that should lead us to another question. Then, then why does everyone need a Savior? I mean, maybe the odds are someone could live a really good life and not get caught up in things. Well, does that mean then they're innocent so they don't need Christ? I mean, now you start to see the whole necessity of Christ's death, the necessity of the gospel, all starts to break down. And so this was a truth not invented by Paul. It was not a truth invented by Martin Luther or John Calvin. 
They were saying, look, this is exactly what the Word of God says. Why is the church not teaching this? Why, why are people who go to church not getting this? Which, again, I think as you hear that, there's not just an indictment on, again, evangelical Christians. There's an indictment on the pulpits that these people are sitting under. Like, how come they haven't heard this is not true? That, that you sin because you are a sinner. Well, look back at Ephesians chapter 2 now, because in verses 5 through 10, we have an opposite truth that complements that. So we move from the doctrine of total depravity, complete sinfulness, to now the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And so you see this presented really in verses 4 and following. Notice the good news now. So 1 through 3 was the bad news. But now notice verse 4, where Paul says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Now, just glance across the page at chapter 1 and verse 11, where, where Paul's talking about our salvation in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 1.11, he says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Our salvation is rooted in God's grace, which is rooted in God's character and his will. Notice that automatically removes any kind of credit that we can take. So as a Christian, you can't sit here and read this and say, well, yeah, that is true. You know, I was sinful, but, but I went to church and I really listened to the sermons. Or I read my Bible and this all made sense to me. You, you can't take credit for that because the fact that that happened is all the result of God's grace. Notice in verses 5 and 6, he speaks about the, the dramatic change. We went in verse 1 from being dead to now in verse 6, we're raised up with Jesus Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms. A change in position, standing, and nature now in Jesus Christ. And this is the result of God's initiative, God's grace drawing us to himself. So it is true that we respond in faith in order to become a Christian. But even that very faith has been ignited by God's grace. So you can't even take credit and say, yeah, but I responded. Yeah, you responded because God drew you, because God changed your heart from being dead to now being made alive in Christ Jesus. And you can start to see the swing that happened in church history, past as well as present. In other words, we tend to go from one extreme to another. So by the time the Protestant Reformation was kind of in spark form, uh, you had only at that time really the Catholic Church. That, that was the church. Uh, and that church was saying you are saved by works, not by grace. And so if you're familiar with church history, you know, there was something called the sale of indulgences, you know, where you could pay 
and get a certificate that said the priest declared your sins are forgiven. Uh, you, you're guaranteed. You, you have it in writing. You have it on paper. You, you bought it. Notice it was all emphasizing works. And Martin Luther, who was a German monk at that time, uh, was in the church, but he was deeply troubled at this. And, and he didn't want to leave the church. There was never his intent, well, I'll form my own denomination, I'll form my own church. But, but he himself wrestled. He tried to be a good monk. But yet he knew his sinfulness. Historians tell us that Luther would go to confession. So imagine being Luther's priest. He would go to confession. He would spend two to three hours in the confessional booth telling the priest everything he, he knew he did wrong. He'd leave, and then sometimes before he'd even get back to his room, he would head back because he thought of some more things that were sinful. Now, it was the convicting power of God that was bringing that. What he wasn't seeing was how is one made righteous? And Paul explains to us here, which God opened up for Luther in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, that you're saved by grace through faith. This change in standing and position with God is a result of God's work, God's gift of salvation. Now notice in verse 10, with the emphasis being on grace, you can start to see where another extreme could develop. The church kind of saying, well, then it doesn't matter what you do. You know, if you're saved by God's grace, you're in, you can live however you want. Well, Galatians 2.10 gives us the complete perspective on what grace and works should be and how they relate. So listen to verse 10. It says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So here's the proper perspective. Verses 8 and 9 emphasize you're saved by grace, not by works. If you're saved by works, then you can boast about something. But, but that is pulled out from on you. You're saved by grace. So before you jump to thinking, well, then works don't matter at all, verse 10 says, no, works are important because they're evidence of your faith. They're, they're not the grounds of your faith. That's not why you're saved, because you're doing certain things. But the visible outworking of your faith is proof that your faith is grounded in grace and received by faith. And so now we see that you need both. You need the bad news, total depravity. And set that now in contrast to the good news, that you're saved by grace through faith, and that works are evidence of a genuine faith, not the grounds of it. And in fact, Romans 10, 9 and 10 gives us a beautiful definition of a Christian. You know, one who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead. That, that's a very clear definition that we believe what the scriptures teach about Christ. Well, the bad news related to this is an increasing number of people 
live thinking salvation and acceptance before God is by works. So they more and more people are believing the exact opposite of what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. And again, let me take you to this state of theology survey. They gave people this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So in other words, God, you know, maybe you know, has different forms of worship. He accepts all worship as long as it comes somehow to one God. So with that statistic, 56% of those who would say they're evangelicals agree with that. I just kind of think what they're saying is here, it's not really what you believe, it's that at least you're sincere in what you believe. You know, or at least that you believe in one God. I mean, Judaism, Islam, all do believe in one God. They're monotheistic, but, but it's not the same God. But here you have over half of evangelical Christians are saying they, they agree with that. that. That's troubling news. And probably for those who don't know Christ, we're talking maybe 85% have that thought. Which again, that, that doesn't surprise us. But that you would have those who claim they, they do follow Christ or they, they're familiar with the Bible saying, yeah, that's not a problem. The second example would be this. They were given this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, this statistic is a little lower. 43% of evangelical Christians agreed with that. So less than half, so you could look at that and say, well, that's not too bad, you know, 43%. But that's gone up about 4% since the last survey. So in other words, it's trending where, where more and more people are, are kind of saying, you know what, maybe we need to back down a little bit from, from Jesus being God, that he's just a, a good moral teacher. Now, as we listen to those things, why is that so distressing? Not just to the reformers in the past, but, but why should that tell us that there's need for a new reformation within the church? To, to look back so we can move forward. To, to look back and say, what are the key doctrines of the faith that are non-negotiables? And so total depravity and salvation by grace alone are, are two that we must keep before us. And if, if we don't do that, here's what's going to happen. We will have, as we have already today, false assurance that many people have. You know, if they're thinking there's no really difference between other faiths, if they're assuming because they go to church, because they put money in the offering, um, that somehow that makes them right with God, uh, guarantees are going to heaven. They, they have a false assurance. In addition, they're believing a false gospel. To kind of think when Paul writes to the believers in Galatia, he says, I'm, I'm shocked that you have departed so quickly from the gospel. Even though the Reformation was over 500 years ago, I think we'd say, how, how did we get so far away 
from what seems so clear and central in the gospel. I was talking to a Dartmouth student last Sunday uh, who was telling me for one of his classes, he has to do a little sort of film project. So what he wants to do, which I commended him for this, he, he's going to do a little segment to kind of show the Christian presence still on the Dartmouth campus. And, and you may remember that Dartmouth has, initially they have this statement that they are like a voice crying in the wilderness. Now we know where that statement came from, but, but Dartmouth has continually distanced themselves from like, well, that's from John the Baptist and he's talking about the gospel. But, but he wants to kind of film a couple different Christian groups on campus and this is going to be what he's turning in for his project, which, which is great because he does want to film logos. He said, are you going to be bothered if I do that? And I was like, no, that'd be great. But it's kind of saying, wow, you know what? We need to get back to the true gospel. Notice in addition, that creates a scene here for false worship. If, if we think Jesus is just a moral leader, maybe to be commended, maybe even emulated, but he's not God. Now, now we're getting into false worship. Why, why would we worship him if that's all he is? Why, why would we pray in his name? Why would we even read what he said if he's just that? And probably the need that comes closer, I think, to all of us is if we buy into what the state of theology is revealing about what generally evangelical Christians believe, it removes the need for sharing Christ. In other words, why do I need to share Christ if everyone's kind of born innocent? Uh, if all these different religions, really, there's no big difference between them. I don't, I don't need to tell people. And if people are basically good, then they're not sinners. And I don't need to tell them that they need a Savior. So all this to remind us that this month, we're not just focusing on church history, but, but their story is also our story. And, and it's where we find even the church today grappling with what are the non-negotiables in the Christian faith that, that have to be promoted, have to be stood on and proclaimed. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you speak your truth to us. And I pray in a world that is susceptible and runs after what it wants to hear, uh, that, Lord, we would be a people uh, committed to teaching and practicing and living out salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because we are sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.